Brinkman, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Damn Yankees. Let's go! Six months out of every year when we cook for them, it never pays. Ah. Instead of praising our goulash, they're appraising the plays of Willie Mays. How are we doing? I hope this episode of The Musical Man finds you well. We do have a lot to go over today, so I want to cover a couple of items here in the opening segment, and then we're going to go directly into the show facts. Chris reminded me that Hal Linden of the Rothschilds recently appeared alongside Ain't Misbehavin's Ken Page and Peter Pan's Kathy Rigby in the West Coast premiere of Grumpy Old Men the Musical. There is no way we have not already talked talked about G.O.M. the musical, right? Well, even if we have, this was a necessary follow-up. And anyway, I'm allowed to repeat myself. The podcast will be going on for a while, so I think we should probably get used to it. Chris also wanted to know if Robbie Benson, who appeared as young Solomon in The Rothschilds, is the same Robbie Benson who plays the Beast in Disney's Beauty and the Beast. They are indeed one in the same. We are making Disney connections right and left these days. I swear the hits just keep on coming. Okay, those were the two items I wanted to address, and as I promised, we are now going to dive straight into the show facts regarding Damn Yankees, okay? Show me the show facts, okay! Damn Yankees was the 1956 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on May 5th, 1955 at the 46th Street Theater before moving to the Adelphi Theater in May 1957. The production ran for a total of 1,019 performances, making it the 115th longest-running show in Broadway history. Per Wikipedia, the 2014 revival of Les Miserables is number 114 with 1,024 performances, and Grand Hotel is number 116 with 1,017 performances. The Book of Damn Yankees was written by Douglas Wallop and George Abbott. The musical is based on Wallop's 1954 novel, The Year the Yankees Lost the Pen which was itself inspired by the German legend of Faust. Faust, the man who sold his soul to the devil in exchange for knowledge and pleasure. 1500s, babies, now what I'm talking about. The music and lyrics were written by Richard Adler and Jerry Ross. Adler and Ross had struck gold on Broadway once before, as their first musical, The Pajama Game, premiered to great acclaim in 1954. Sadly, they would never collaborate again, as Ross died from chronic bronchiectasis, 
at the age of 29. Adler would go on to write Rex with Sheldon Harnick, Music Is with Will Holt, and Quamina, for which he wrote both music and lyrics. The director of the original Broadway production of Damn Yankees, George Abbott. The musical director, Hal Hastings. Choreographer, here is the exact credit from IBDB, dances and musical numbers staged by none other than Bob Fosse. Hello, Bobby. Scenic design, William and Gene Eckhart. Lighting design, oddly enough, I could not find a credited lighting designer. We do have a sound designer, Harry Green, and costume design was by William and Gene Eckhart. The original Broadway cast included Stephen Douglas, Gwen Verdon. Let's talk about Gwen Verdon. Verdon had earned two Broadway credits before starring in Damn Yankees, those being the 1950 review Alive and Kicking and the 1953 musical Can Can. The producers of Damn Yankees were set on the idea that a dancer should serve as their star. Actress Mitzi Gaynor and ballerina Zizi Jean-Mer received offers which they rejected. No, no! And when the producers took a chance on Verdon, she refused as well. No, believing her future was in choreography. She eventually agreed to meet with Fosse, who had his own reservations about casting Verdon, and their encounter led to a lifelong artistic and rocky, to say the least, romantic relationship. Fosse, Verdon, hello, FX is calling. Let's keep moving through this Broadway cast list. Let's talk about Ray Walston. Walston is generally known for his film and TV credits, which include the film versions of South Pacific and this week's subject, as well as The Sting, My Favorite Martian, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and that movie's little-known TV follow-up, Fast Times. Damn Yankees was actually one of Walston's final Broadway credits, following such plays and musicals as The Alchemist, Summer and Smoke, King Richard III, Me and Juliet, and House of Flowers. Rounding out this Damn Yankees cast, we have Ray Allen, Richard Bishop, Shane Shannon Bolin, Russ Brown, Nathaniel Frey, Del Horstman, Elizabeth Howell, Janie John Vierre, Jimmy Comack, Al Lanty, Albert Linville, Eddie Phillips, Robert Schaefer, Ralph Strain, and Jean Stapleton. Stapleton earned her first film credit by recreating the role of sister for the Damn Yankees movie. I believe we would have discussed Stapleton during our Funny Girl episode. All in the Family, Michael, You've Got Mail, Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World, Miss is Piggle Wiggle. If you think you don't have a reference for Jean Stapleton, you are probably wrong. She is an icon. Let's talk about those Tony nods. Tony nods. Damn Yankees won. Best musical, of course, but also best actor in a musical, Ray Walston. Best actress in a musical, Gwen Verdon. Best featured actor in a musical, Russ Brown. Best choreography, Bob Fosse. We have a Tony Award for conductor and musical director. That went to Hal Hastings. And finally, we have an award for stage technician which was awarded to Harry Green. The production was additionally nominated for Best Actor in a Musical, Stephen Douglas, and Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Ray Allen. So in total, we have nine nominations and seven awards when all is said and done. Not bad at all. The plot, the plot. It is now time to talk about the plot. We open in Chevy Chase, Maryland, where Meg Boyd finds herself wishing for a more attentive husband. For six months out of every year, Joe Boyd is obsessed 
obsessed with baseball. He loves the Washington Senators, hates the New York Yankees, and secretly dreams of a life on the field. As Meg saunters off to bed, Joe makes a proclamation that will change his life forever. Quote, I'd sell my soul for just one long ball hitter. Quote, enter Mr. Applegate, a slick and sinister fellow who offers Joe a deal. If our hero is willing to give up his soul, Applegate will change the middle-aged and out-of-shape Joe Boyd into Joe Hardy, a 22-year-old baseball prodigy who can help the Senators win the pennant. Joe is disturbed when Meg's friends, sister and Doris Miller, see him standing with Applegate and assume he is talking to himself. They do not see Applegate because he is not of this world. He is, quite literally, the devil. In light of this revelation, Joe insists on an escape clause. Applegate concedes, making it clear Joe can break their contract at any time, so long as it's before midnight on September 24th. After that, our hero will lose his soul and forever remain in his youthful form. With the terms in place, Joe Boyd is officially transformed into Joe Hardy. He leaves with Applegate for the stadium after leaving a goodbye note for Meg. I should say I've done my best to lay out the details of this Faustian bargain, but to be honest, that part of the plot is murky as hell, no pun intended, and subsequent iterations of the show did little to clear it up for me. Therefore, if I have made any mistakes, I apologize. The Senators are in a slump. Their manager, Van Buren, insists it is a matter of heart, or the lack thereof. But when Applegate appears to show off Joe and his astounding skills, the team is reinvigorated. Ace reporter Gloria Thorpe is intrigued by Joe. He claims to be from Hannibal, Missouri, and when his tight shoes are tossed aside for a larger pair, Gloria bestows upon him a crackerjack nickname, Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Sometime later, Sister and Doris linger outside the stadium, eager to catch a glimpse of the Senator's new star. Joe is famous now, beloved, but overall the experience has left him feeling hollow. He misses Meg. He's tired of the press asking about his past. Applegate promises to hook him up with a real sexy dame, but our hero balks. Balks is what he does. Another woman? Never. He then goes on to inform the press that the Senators will have the pennant well in hand before September 24th. Applegate meets with his assistant, Lola. She just completed her latest assignment, which involved ruining a man's life and pushing him to suicide. Her new goal is to distract Joe until the deadline passes and Applegate can snatch up his soul. The devil's plans are bigger than one measly ball player, as we come to learn. If everything goes off without a hitch, the Senators will lose the pennant, Oh, they'll lose, all right. The defeat will be so humiliating, it will cause their fans to suffer. We're talking about apoplexy. We're talking about heart attacks. We're talking about suicide. Applegate is a big fan of suicide, all things considered. Joe returns home and introduces himself to Meg, who unsurprisingly does not recognize her husband behind a stranger's face. She agrees to let him rent a room as Sister and Doris arrive. They are astonished to discover the one and only Joe Hardy will be living with their pal. Joe pretends to discover a sum of money while unpacking and gives it to Meg, who reasons that her husband must have left it behind. Lola presents herself to Joe in the stadium locker room. She is hell-bent, no pun intended, on seducing our hero, but despite a luscious routine, he 
manages to resist her advances. Applegate is furious. How could this have happened? How? In a bid to keep Joe and Meg apart, the villain spreads a nasty bit of gossip regarding their relationship. Meg is an older woman, her husband vanished under mysterious circumstances, and she's living in sin with some stud? Seems pretty scandalous if you ask me. Lola approaches Joe at a pep rally to explain that A, she is now on his side, and B, Applegate is doing everything he can to spoil the senator's chances. Gloria confronts Applegate about Joe's past. She's done her research. There never was no Joe Hardy living in Hannibal, Missouri, so what gives? Applegate pretends to panic, insisting Joe is not Shifty McCoy, <laughs> the ball player who took a bribe down in Mexico before going on the lam? No, no way, there's no way he's actually Shifty McCoy in disguise. Lola's sister and a group of local kids perform routines to honor Joe as his reputation is called into question. Act 2. The senators are within reach of the pennant. Meg meets with Joe and apologizes for having asked him to move out of the house. The rumors had become too painful to bear, but losing another Joe has left her feeling lonelier than ever. Our hero reassures Meg that Joe Boyd will return one day. I would argue Joe Boyd could return right then and there if he cared about his wife at all, but what do I know? Applegate informs Lola that once the deadline has passed, Joe will be made to lose the final game of the season and bring ruin upon all of Maryland. Lola confesses an affection for Joe, which nearly makes Applegate puke. Ugh, whatever happened to evil for evil's sake? On September 24th, Joe appears before the baseball commissioner to defend his honor and avow he is not Shifty McCoy, as many have come to think. Meg, sister, and Doris lied to the commissioner, claiming they remember Joe as a friend and neighbor from Hannibal. They even managed to convince Hannibal's postmaster that he remembers Joe, despite the fact that he previously testified to never having met our hero. At 11.55 p.m., five minutes before his deadline, Joe asks to leave the room as he plans to renounce Applegate and turn back into Joe Boyd. The commissioner refuses and the clock strikes midnight. Joe now belongs to Applegate. But where is that fiendish louse? As it turns out, Lola knocked him out with booze and pills. You can do that to the devil, I guess. She was once the ugliest woman in Providence, Rhode Island, before selling her soul, and the idea of Joe living in eternal damnation fills her with sorrow. Lola and Joe share a single melancholy kiss before getting absolutely trashed. Applegate eventually rises from his stupor and races to the stadium, where the Senators are in the final moments of the pennant game. The ball soars through the air and our hero catches it with ease, thus bringing his team to victory. In that same moment, Applegate turns Joe Hardy back into Joe Boyd. Joe manages to flee from the stadium without being seen. The team is in a state of shock. What happened to their buddy, Shoe? is Joe. Huh, tis a mystery. Joe races home to reunite with Meg. Applegate arrives with Lola to strike a new bargain. If our hero agrees to give up his soul and leave Meg forever, the Senators will go on to win the World Series. Joe refuses, much to Lola's relief. The end. I'm not at all clear as to why Applegate cannot claim Joe's soul at the end of the show. The deadline passed. You should be able to suck up that soul anytime you want, right? 
1994 Broadway revival of Damn Yankees irons out this wrinkle by making it clear the love Meg and Joe share is stronger than Applegate's power, which is a fine solution. This is a fairy tale, after all, so we may as well end with true love acting as a deus ex machina. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1955 original Broadway cast album of Damn Yankees. I watched the 1958 film adaptation. Let's talk about that. It was directed by George Abbott and Stanley Donen, who also directed, among other films, Singing in the Rain, Funny Face, Charade, and The Little Prince. A note on availability. Amazon is only making the film available for purchase, strangely enough, but you can rent Damn Yankees via Fandango now, which I did. Gift cards. Hello. Hello, baby. Everyone, I mean everyone, every single person from the original Broadway cast reprised their roles for this film, except for Stephen Douglas, who was replaced by Tab Hunter in the role of Joe Hardy. I'm sorry, Stephen, I'm sorry, but Tab is a cutie patootie who manages to cut a decent rug. What can I say? Oh, I'm sorry, a correction. Albert Linville was replaced by William Fawcett in the role of the Hannibal Postmaster. So see, Stephen, you're not alone, okay? It was, it was you and Albert. You and Albert can hang out, okay? Okay, all right. Nathaniel Frey and James Jimmy Comack are low-key two of the best actors in the movie. I really like these guys. Whenever they appear as Smokey and Rocky, you know you're in for a nice comedic beat. There's a bit about Smokey working on a crossword puzzle that is especially good, and I could listen to Rocky say his dopey catchphrase all day. Three and five! Three and five! Rocky and Smokey are two cool cats meow meow in my book. Applegate has a witch Answering his door, no big deal, a Margaret Hamilton, Wicked Witch of the West. It is crazy. What a wacky sight gag that is. Gene Stapleton's costumes are fabulous. FYI, NBD, FYI. She wears a bucket hat over her eyes, and the design of the hat makes it appear as if she is wearing sunglasses. This woman was channeling Mrs. Piggle Wiggle from day one. I'm not going to act like the movie is radically progressive, when it comes to race, but the Senators are shown to have a black player, and that should count for something. The character may not have a name or dialogue, but when you consider Damn Yankees was released just 11 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, the sight of this guy joking around with his teammates is fairly refreshing. He's also a featured dancer in the Shoeless Joe number, so it's clear Bob Fosse respected his talents. If anyone can confirm the name of this actor, that would be swell. A number of actors without headshots are listed as baseball players on IMDb, so I'm sort of at a loss when it comes to that. All in all, the movie may not have much in the way of cinematic flair, but that's easy to overlook when Fosse's choreography and Verdon's knack for comedy are on hand. Meg has some line about Joe having been on a secret mission this whole time, 
damn it, this is at the end of the movie when they're reunited. But I don't have time to unpack that nonsense. Oh, that's all right, Joe. You don't have to explain. You've been on a secret mission. Oh, okay, Meg. All right. I also watched the 1967 NBC television film. The TV movie, which aired on April 8th, 1967, was presented by General Electric Theater and starred Jerry Lanning, Lean Remick, Jim Backus, and Phil Silvers. If you are a fan of Damn Yankees and eager to check this out, listen to me when I say you should not bother. The TV movie stinks! Why? Well, number one, the sets, much like the TV version of Strauss and Adams' Superman musical, are designed in the style of a cheap cartoon. Think Dennis the Menace, or Schoolhouse Rock, or those Tootsie Roll ads from the 1970s. Actually, there's no reason for me to insult those artists with that comparison. I'll simply say watching the cast move through these ugly, cramped spaces gave me agita. These are the set designs of the doomed. Number two, I would say a quarter of the runtime is spent watching moldy public domain footage, crude pop art montages, and subpar animation in the style of Monty Python's Terry Gilliam. It's clear no one had faith in the actors, as we are constantly cutting away from their performances to showcase this tripe. Number three, the Fosse choreography is completely MIA, which is without a doubt the easiest way to gut this show. Removing Fosse's work from Damn Yankees is like serving the head of a turkey for supper. Off-putting. Perplexing. Where did the body go? Number four. Nearly all of Adler and Ross's score has been replaced with inferior, obnoxious, unrecognizable music. The vocal lines tend to sound familiar, but the music itself? Unrecognizable. We'll drop in a couple of examples later on, so prepare yourself for that. Steal yourself for that, I should say. We deserve a new live TV version of Damn Yankees, if only to wipe the swamp water taste of this bunk out of our collective mouth. Did Chris and I watch the whole thing? No. We made it through whatever Lola wants and pulled the plug. I also listened to the 1994 Broadway Revival cast album. The 94 Revival starred Jared Emick, B.B. Newworth, and Victor Garber, who was eventually replaced by Jerry Lewis in the comedian's Broadway debut. Lewis went on to star in both the touring and London iterations of the Revival. I am a fan of the word iteration this week, it would seem. So fancy. The 94 recording boasts a ton of material from Jack O'Brien's revised book and is bigger and brassier than the original. Nothing wrong with Big and Brassy, though I could do without. The City of Angels trio that keeps muscling its way to the head of the pack, their material is too ostentatious for my liking, so if you must include the trio, consider paring down their stage time. My only honest-to-goodness gripe with the 94 revival is that it tries to both sides the shaky foundation of Meg and Joe's marriage. O'Brien is trying his damnedest to flesh out this relationship, but he hits a wall of mid-90s feminism almost immediately. He seems to be saying, yeah, Joe may have been boorish and inattentive, and he never offered to help out around the house. At the same time, Meg never asked him to help out 
and she never even tried to learn about baseball. So you see, they both have room to grow. Counterpoint from the admittedly cushy standpoint of first quarter 2021, no one should have to ask men to do the basics. And if we're tallying points here, I would point out how Meg never left Joe with nothing more than a Dear John letter to give him comfort. So your husband dropped you flat. What could you have done to avoid this unfortunate outcome? Bless, said Snoopy. And finally, I watched the 1994 Tony Awards performance of Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. This is actually one part of a 14-minute montage led by Victor Garber, who appears as Applegate to introduce the various productions that were up for Best Revival of a Musical. Let's hear his patter from the top of the sequence. It is both corny and delightful. For context, Garber is wearing a bright red tuxedo and talking into a bright red cordless phone, which is a good look on him. Hello, Hal, it's me. What do you mean, who? Who else gets to leave? Listen, I'm trying to get tickets for some of these revivals up here on Broadway, and I'm having a hell of a time. But surely there are enough producers and agents down there to pull a few strings? Well, hot to it. You just can't get good help these days. It's enough to make you sick. I'll save my thoughts on the other revivals from this montage, those being Grease, She Loves Me, and Carousel, and focus on Shoeless Joe, which is a blast. I could not take my eyes off of Vicki Lewis, and her voice struck me with the blunt force of a baseball bat. The ensemble is unbelievably talented, but make no mistake, these men only exist to worship at the altar of Vicki Lewis. She is a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, Pip. The montage ends with a full company rendition of Heart and an appearance from Gwen Verdon, Gene Stapleton, and George Abbott, who was nearing his 107th birthday at the time. Let's hear from them. On May 5th in 1955, the three of us were together for the opening of Damn Yankees. Gene and I were on stage, and Mr. Abbott, who had co-written the book and directed the entire production, was backstage. We were all younger then. <laughs> but not one of us was as young in spirit and enthusiasm or as old in the wisdom of the theater as Mr. Abbott. Now today... <laughs> today... Today he is still involved in the profession for which he has given so much and a few days he will celebrate his 107th birthday. Get on with this, Mr. Abbott. It's a good idea. <laughs> on with the show. <laughs> the only way I would agree to live to be 107 is if you told me a standing ovation was waiting for me at the end of the line. Other notable productions of Damn Yankees include a 2007 L.A. revival, which was directed by Jason Alexander, set in 1981 Los Angeles, and featured a majority black and Latino cast. A 2008 City Center Encores revival, which starred Cheyenne Jackson, Jane Krakowski, and Sean Hayes. And a 2017 concert that was directed 
directed by Kathleen Marshall and starred Matthew Morrison, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and Whoopi Goldberg as Applegate. Where in the world is that cast recording? James Earl Jones was also advertised as being involved in this concert, but he was replaced by Reggie Jackson. There is zero evidence of this concert existing on YouTube. I would also like to know more about the revival set in 1980s LA, because that sounds weird. Strangely, Ray Walston tried to revive the character of Applegate in a follow-up musical called Raisin Cane. The show, which was developed in the early 1980s, would have featured music, lyrics, and a book by San Francisco writer Ted Kapulos. The plot sounds like a nightmare. Applegate, intent on destroying Broadway, transforms a young girl into a woman so she can star in a musical. On opening night, Applegate will turn the woman back into a girl and condemn the producers to bankruptcy. Ooh, how wicked. Uh, I'm sorry, question. Do understudies not exist in this world? From what I can tell, Raisin Cane never went anywhere, and we as a society are better off for it. One more thing before we move on to the score. Does anyone remember how a new film adaptation of Damn Yankees was announced all the way back in 2009? It was supposed to star Jake Gyllenhaal as Joe and Jim Carrey as Applegate. There has not been a substantial update on this project since 2009, and we as a society are better off for it. Actually, if you cast Tom Holland as Joe Hardy, I'll endorse a new movie without question. I know myself too well. Gyllenhaal can play Applegate. That sounds like it could be fun. And, I don't know, Zendaya can play Lola. Yes, Zendaya shall play Lola. What a basic choice. Yeah, well, sometimes the basic choice is also the best choice. You would have heard a bit of six months out of every year at the very tip-top of this episode, but I want to circle back to it for the sake of comparing the OBC version to that of the 94 revival. Here is how the original track begins. When we met in 1938, it was November. When I said that I would be his mate, it was December. That's what I reasoned, that's what I reasoned, then April rolled around, strike three, Paul, for This is a pretty lugubrious way to start a musical, with Meg complaining from a corner of her living room. It takes a while before the number shifts into high gear, whereas the 94 revival hits the ground running. Every year, I might as well be made of stone. Six months out of every year when I'm with him, I'm alone. Six months out of every year, he doesn't take me anywhere. Six months out of every year when I play cards, Senators take over my place in his home. 
This is a big improvement. Not only are we building upon the freneticism of the overture, we're turning the number into even more of a showcase for the full company. Get every last one of those actors out on that stage ASAP, I say, absolutely. I imagine the men sitting in armchairs that can roam about the stage like rascal scooters. And if you think that's a little much, wait till you hear some of my other ideas. So sleep your sleep, old girl. Our love will keep, old girl, till then. We'll call you Hardy, Joe Hardy. You'll be 22 years old. They'll put a new wing on that baseball museum at Cooperstown, dedicated to you, the Hardy Shrine. <laughs> Let's go, the cab's waiting. Hey, did you? <laughs> I, I can't believe it. Why, it's incredible. And though your has to go, he may come back to you again. So sleep your sleep, old girl. Our love of people, girl, till then. Goodbye, old girl. My old girl. Goodbye. Goodbye, old girl cracks me up. Here we have this beautiful, semi-haunting serenade about a man who is leaving his wife in the dark of night. Quote, can't tell you where I go. It isn't fair, I know, but trust in me and carry on. I haven't said it much. I guess I've lost my touch, but my old girl, I love you so. Quote, this material packs a hell of a wallop, especially when Dennis Kelly is singing for the Angels on the 94 album. But you have to forget about what's going on for that wallop to mean anything. Joe is not leaving to fight in a war or draw gangsters away from his wife. He is leaving his wife to indulge in a midlife crisis. And I realize he comes to regret that decision, but the starting point of the arc amuses me nonetheless. If Chris vanished from our home to play Play the ponies and left a see you later alligator note on my bedside table, I would not care how well he sang about the difficulty of his decision. He would be in the doghouse upon coming back. Thank you very much is where he would be. Bark, bark, puppy play. Now would probably be a good time to say that in college, I sang the last chunk of Goodbye Old Girl for an audition. This would be the chunk where Joe Boyd has become Joe Hardy. I never understood the context of the song, and I wasn't really able to sing it properly, so overall I would say my decision was uh, uh, a good one. Professors patiently watching me audition, squinting slightly, and now you're Joe! Yeah, 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 enough, all right. <laughs> a great slugger we haven't got. A great pitcher we haven't got. A great ball club we haven't got. What do we got? We've got heart. All you really need is heart. When the odds are saying you'll never win, that's when the 
the idea. We've got hope. We don't sit around and mope. Not a solitary song do we hear. Mr. Cause we've got hope. Boys, I'm proud of you. Ooh, baby, baby, I love me the high end on that three-part harmony. That's a wake-the-hell-up note if ever there was one. That note will clear out your sinuses and wipe the early morning crud out of your eyes. James Jimmy Comeck as Rocky, you gotta hand it to him. He's snatching those notes out of the air. Unfortunately, we must now compare the OBC rendition of Heart to that found in the 1967 TV movie. Uh-oh. As I said before, the music that accompanies the vocal line is completely different, so I hope you're ready. Let's go. You gotta have heart. All you really need is heart. When the odds are saying you'll never win, that's when the grin should start. You gotta have hope. Mustn't sit around and mope. That music is cursed. Get that boardwalk calliope garbage out of my face. And I am sorry, but Jim Backus is about as invested in this as your average episode of Gilligan's Planet. Say there, Gilligan, how's about we take ourselves to Uranus and pick up a couple of Milky Way babes? You want to take that again, Jim? No. With all due respect to Ray Allen, I spoke too highly of Vicki Lewis in the first half of this episode to not feature her rendition of Shoeless Joe from Hannibal Moe. Could I play both versions? Sure. Will I? know? Ray Allen will forgive me, and if she doesn't, may God have mercy on me when my hour comes up. I wanted to mention Bob Fosse's choreography for this number, which was preserved in all of its glory for the 1958 film. I'm not sure why I like this so much, but there's something about how the guys create a catcher's mask with their hands. That really stuck with me. I'm doing it right now. I have my hand up to my face and it's in a claw position. I'm wearing a mask. This is during the slow motion section, which is itself super impressive. I admire slow-mo performances. Slow-mo. The catcher's mask effect is just so simple and theatrically pure. It takes you less than half a second to realize what's being a vote, but once you do, it's like someone dunked your brain in a fish tank filled with serotonin. What a treat. There isn't a homewrecker on my staff better than you, Lola. But this fellow is stubborn. Ah, oh, come on, Chief. You know I've got what it takes. Don't make me brag. I took the zing out of the king of Siam. I took the starch out of the sails of the Prince of Wales. It's no great art getting the heart of a man. 
brains a little talent with an emphasis on the latter. I made mincemeat out of a sweet young farmer. I knocked the fight out of a knight when I pierced his armor. And I'll bet I can upset every male in a Yale regatta. A little brains, a little talent with an emphasis on the latter. I will now take a moment to say Gwen Verdon's name several times as if it were a sort of mantra. Gwen Verdon. Gwen Verdon. Gwen Verdon. Gwen Verdon. The timing, the precision, the musculature, the glint in her eye, the dollop of crackling bonfire hair resting atop her head. The fact that she could have reduced me to atoms with a swift kick to the chest. No one can do what Verdon is doing with Lola's first number, A Little Brains, A Little Talent. I'm not saying we should stop other people from tackling the song, but choosing to tackle this song means setting up camp in Verdon's long, long shadow. Her dark silhouette may be a prison, but it is a breathtaking and inspiring prison if you want it to be, so settle in. Forward all of your mail to the shadow. I have a concept for how to stage A Little Brain, but I'm already over it, and yet I am going to pitch it to you anyway. How do you like that? All right, my concept is as such. If Lola is going to invoke all of these figures from history, why not have them join her on stage one by one to form an official harem? Put the Prince of Wales in the mix. Let me see the farmer and the knight, the millionaire and the men of the Yale regatta. Let me see George Washington. See, this is bad. <laughs> this idea is bad. This is crowded and clumsy and takes away from Lola's introduction to the audience. Let Lola shine on her own, Jonathan. My God, she does not need the help. A man doesn't know what he has until he loses it. When a man has the love of a woman, he abuses it. Till it is no longer around But the happy thought is Whatever it is, he's lost May someday, once again doesn't know is the only song in Damn Yankees that prevents Joe from looking like an irredeemable louse. This dope took advantage of his wife's love, made an awful decision knowing how it would hurt her, and is only now beginning to comprehend the horror of his situation. 
Musical comedy aesthetic aside, this is a mind melter of a scenario that could very well end with Joe roasting on a spit in hell. But to his credit, his mind is on Meg at this moment. I am still fairly certain he can go back to being Joe Boyd whenever he wants, and if I'm right about that, well, then you can disregard the credit I'm trying to hand out. The 1958 film replaces A Man Doesn't Know with a forlorn solo for Meg called There's Something About an Empty Chair. That song is a snooze, and those in charge should have stuck with the original duet. If you're in the market for a sad tune about a chair, go with Twitter icon Dion Warwick's A House Is Not A Home. The chair in that song has big-time mopey-ass energy. You fool Give in Give in Listening to Gwen Verdon perform Whatever Lola Wants and watching Gwen Verdon perform Whatever Lola Wants are two very different experiences. A cast album can only provide part of the equation, so if you've never seen the Damn Yankees movie, you should at least watch this scene. There is a high-quality version available on YouTube, so hop to it. You have homework is what you do. You are my students, and you have homework. What I adore about this number is how each Step and pop and lunge. Every single move is designed to make Lola appear as ridiculous and non-sexual as possible. The character believes her seduction routine is flawless, and honestly, she's actually right. Who could turn away from this goofball? She is Bugs Bunny and Red Hot Riding Hood rolled into one, with all of the animated spirit and physicality those comparisons would imply. Allow me to try and describe some of these isolated movements for those of you who did not do their homework. Naughty, naughty. We begin with Verdon taking two steps forward, twisting herself to be as bow-legged as the body may allow. She lets her right arm hang like a link of sausages in a butcher shop window. She brings her hands to the back of her head, sticks her butt in Joe's face, and bops to the beat in such a way as to be almost imperceptible. We have a few violent shakes of the rump. Barump! We have an elevator squat shimmy, prancing pony stamps, and a surreptitious scratching of the ankle. Lola walks like an Egyptian. Lola crawls on all fours like a demented wind-up baby. Lola scoots backward on her butt like a spaniel with an itch. The list goes on and on. Here's a shocker for you. Based on my research, Andrea Martin never played Lola at any point throughout her career. God knows she would have leaned into the accent. And speaking of the accent, there is no way we would retain that today, right? How do you do, Mr. Chokhardi? Uh, how do you do? Happy to meet you. Uh, likewise, I am muy sure. You know, 
suddenly all I can think of is a hot dog. Mr. Applegate, please. Oh, I mean, oh, I can't. Oh, you are um, uncomfortable with Lola, Jess? Yes. Uh, no. Huh? I mean, I'm just oh, a little. No, bit... no, no, no. The truth is, it is Lola who does not know how to speak to a big hero like a chucho. Cousintide. Hmm? Uh. Pardon? Yeah, no more white women adopting a funny Latina accent, please. We did it in the 50s and in the 90s, and now it's time to call it a day. Gwen, BB, I respect the hell out of you, but that gag has aged like an open container of Greek yogurt. We should keep the line about Applegate going out for a hot dog, though hot dog jokes are right up my alley. We do have one last clip to share from the 1967 TV movie, oh no, and once we get through it, we will never hear from those poor sods again. So let's tuck in and try to enjoy our beige gruel. Whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. Little ma'am, little Lola wants you. Make up your mind to have never get over how these songs have been so thoroughly warped and mangled. Lest we forget, none of Fosse's choreography is recreated here. Why do that when you can have Lee Remick wave a fan in Jerry Lanning's face for five minutes? I swear to God, something is wrong with Lee Remick in this TV movie. Her glassy eyes scared the shit out of me. Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? Who's got the pain when they go? Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? I don't know who. Do you? Who needs a pill when they do the mumbo? Who needs a pill when they go? Who needs a pill when they do the mumbo? I don't know who. Do you? Someone must be sick with the heat or slipping on everyone's feet. But if everyone's feeling okay, why don't they just say ole when the music carries them away? Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? Who's got the pain when they go? Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? I don't know who. Do you? My thoughts on who's got the pain are all over the place. They are shredded like ingredients in coleslaw, and so I offer them to you in no particular order. The song is, of course, catchy as hell, and maybe the most effective earworm in the canon. An argument could be made. Top five, no contest. The choreography is wildly innovative to this day, and watching Verdant dance with Fosse left me wondering if even the best dancers of today could recreate their moves. Verdant is traveling across that stage with remarkable speed and control. As far as the Earps are concerned, I love the Earps. The Earps are first rate. Who doesn't enjoy a good erp every now and again? How about when Adler and Ross change up the melody halfway through the number? Is there a doctor? 
For there is an element of doubt As to Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? Who's got the pain when they go uh? Who needs a pill when they do the mumbo? Who needs a pill when they go uh? I dare say we have slipped into a mirror dimension. The TV movie cuts who's got the pain, presumably because no one in the cast knew how to dance, and their choreographer was a, I don't know, retired math teacher who took one dance lesson when they were 13. The 94 revival turns pain into a group number, which is not a big mistake huge, but is a mistake. Damn Yankees has plenty of group numbers as is. Let's stick with what made Payne iconic and allow it to remain as a duet. Lastly, anyone who's familiar with both the Pajama Game and Damn Yankees will understand Who's Got the Pain is just a better version of Steam Heat. Steam Heat is presented to a crowd at a union meeting, whereas Payne is performed at a pep rally, so the authorial intent is clear on both sides. We wrote a fun song that has no bearing on the plot, so we might as well have someone sing it at a glorified talent show. You got a problem with that? I do not. Hey Oz, remember those twins we took a ride with? Operating side by side with yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're out of gas three miles from Philly. The night is warm, the skies are dilly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I suggest we sleep beneath a tree <laughs> with no one there but us, the chicks, and me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there we are, laying side by side under the tree. Four minds with a single thought. I look at my girl, and I look at mine. And then with one fell swoop, then they thought about the game. The game, the game, oh, yes, they thought about the game. The game, the game, to our women, one and all. We will see you in the fall, but for now we've got to stall and regain. And think about the game, think about the game. Washington senators really should hook up with the sailors of South Pacific and the soldiers of Little Me and bang it out until they collapse. The game, which was not retained for the purposes of the Damn Yankees film, is yet another Broadway number about men who say they want to have sex with women, but believe they are not allowed to have sex with women. Ooh, frustrating. We want to find ourselves a hot little chicky poo, but the boss says that ain't kosher. Oh, well, I guess we'll just have to work something out in the communal showers. Maybe a dick lands in my hand. Maybe it don't. Maybe we make promises society won't allow us to keep. Who knows? On the subject of Damn Yankees having more than enough group numbers, is it silly to think the game could work as a duet for Rocky and Smokey? Sort of like a hornier version of Kiss Me Kate's Brush Up Your Shakespeare. I like this idea, as I feel Rocky and Smokey deserve their own song. They're nice boys. Holy cow, I just remembered the verse in which two guys basically maintain eye contact before they go to town on their respective dates. Nothing queer about that at all. Now that you're gone, I miss Joe more than ever. 
He's closer than you think. He's near to you, near to you. Though you think he's far away, he's near to you, so near to you, as near as April is to May. Like the game, Near to You was unceremoniously kicked to the curb when it came time to turn this week's subject into a movie. To that I say, uh, yeah, seems like a reasonable decision. Near to You is creepy, like Joe has something sinister planned for Meg when she lets her guard down. Oh, don't worry, I'm sure your husband is closer than you think. Say, how about we go over this life insurance policy? What do you say, Meg? Meg, put down the dishes and pick up a pen! Meg! These forms are not going to sign themselves. The 94 revival expands upon the song's eerie nature by turning it into a trio, with Joe Boyd and Joe Hardy appearing on stage to sing with Meg. Uh, <laughs> no thanks. This is a little too ghosts can't do it for my taste, so let's put this in the proverbial trunk, the song I should say, and forget all about it. The song I should say. I see Bonaparte, a mean one, if ever I've seen one, and Nero fiddling through that lovely blaze. Antoinette, dainty queen, with her quaint guillotine. <laughs> Those were the good old days. I see Indians dragging an empty covered wagon when scalping the settlers was the latest craze. And that glorious morn, Jack the Ripper was born. <laughs> Those are the good old days. I'd sit in my rocking chair Peacefully rocking there Counting my blessings by the score The rack was in fashion The plagues were my passion Each day held a new joy in store Was anybody happy? I see cannibals munching a missionary luncheon. The years may have flown, but the memory stays like the hopes that were dashed when the stock market crashed. Yeah, those were the good old days. I'd walk a million miles or more for some of the gore of those good enjoy the line, I see cannibals munching a missionary luncheon. I'm not going to act as if the line isn't problematic. And if the cannibal line is problematic, there is no way we're keeping the joke about murderous Indians. 
Oh boy, the 94 edition of Those Were the Good Old Days provides a couple of extra verses for the sake of an encore. I say we remove the material about cannibals and Indians, replace it with the material from the encore, and nix the encore outright. Who needs the encore? I am just fine without it. Yes, I want to play Applegate. The question is insulting. Do you want to play Applegate, Jonathan? Would you get anything out of that? Of course I would. Uh, I would uh, play Applegate uh, as the biggest Aquina to come barreling out of hell, and audiences would have no idea what to do with me. Victor Garber laughs like a maniac for 20 seconds at the end of Act 1, and if I know how to do anything, it's laughing like a maniac for a gross period of time. That's enough, Jonathan. No, I'm not done. That's enough, Jonathan. No, I'm not done. Put me in, coach. Put me in. Two lost souls on the highway of life. We ain't even got a sister or brother. But ain't it just great? Ain't it just great? We've got each other Two lost ships On a stormy sea One with no sail And one with no rudder But ain't it just great Ain't it just grand We've got each other have one question regarding two lost souls. Are Lola and Joe getting drunk at Hernando's hideaway? Ah, the pajama game. And damn Yankees officially exist within the same universe. I have made my decision and we must respect it moving forward. That's all I have to say regarding the damn Yankees score. And now we are going to hear from our fine sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Hi there, fella. This seat taken? Oh, wonderful. Charlie Cowell, nice to meet you, buddy. You in the game as well, I see. Oh, paint supplies. Say, now, that's a good market. Customers of all ages, I should think. You know what I'm saying? Of course you do. I sell coffee myself, uh, yes, yes, I, I used to sell anvils up and down the East Coast, and y you know what's hilarious, nobody wanted to buy anvils. They said, get out of here, Charlie, we hate you. Before that, I, uh, I sold ice up in Nome, Alaska. Yes, it's true, Nome, Alaska. That didn't work out. Uh, everyone hated me up there. They said, get out of here, Charlie, you're awful, we hate you. And before that, I, I was actually in pictures. Yeah, yeah. Did you ever see, hey, did you ever see the annoying little boy who vanished? You're looking at the producer, yeah! <laughs> what a flop, oh boy. Big flop. They made me. Uh, they made me appear before Congress to explain myself. Maybe you saw that in the papers. They kept saying, "Where is the little boy from the movie? Why can't we find him?" <laughs> uh oh, I'll tell you what. They never found Robbie Cerulean. 
I know that much. Don't leave town, Robbie. We have more questions for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Zoo! That's the sound I made on the way out of town. Zoo! <laughs> anyway, now my name is Charlie Cowell, and I, I sell 5678 coffee. Uh, here, actually, try a, here, a free spoonful. No, 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 open your mouth. A free spoonful of this stuff. That'll, that'll cure what ails you. Tell me what you think about this. It's pretty fantastic, am I right? Nice and crunchy. Can I, can I put you down for a can? Three? What a say? This may be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> say, you ever taken a bullet for a man? <laughs> uh, never say never is what I have to say to that, friend. Never say never. <laughs> Final thoughts regarding Damn Yankees. I, I had my reservations when it came to revisiting Damn Yankees. I approached it with caution, but now I realize my opinion of this week's subject had likely been tainted by The Pajama Game, uh-oh, a musical I don't really care for. If you think the plot of Damn Yankees has problems, wait until we talk about Payama. As always, I am available to accept direct offers when it comes to playing the role of Applegate. We here at The Musical Man have no interest in auditions or negotiations. I am offer only. Now, as a reminder, in 1956, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Damn Yankees, and the only other nominee that season was Pipe Dream. This was actually the first time a complete list of nominees would have been made available to the public, okay? Now, do I think Pipe Dream should have won out over Damn Yankees? No, I don't believe so. It's been a long, long time since I sat down with Pipe Dream, but I have a, a good, hearty feeling that Damn Yankees is really where it should be. It should get comfortable. You're not going anywhere, Damn Yankees. You're not going anywhere. Let's rank Damn Yankees against all of the other musicals we've talked about here on the podcast. As always, if you want to look at this full ranking, follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod. Go to our like section, the first tweet you find there in that like section. That's a Google Sheet. Click through, go to the Google Sheet, go to the second tab. That's where the ranking is. I'm going to place Damn Yankees at number 21. That is between Candide at 20 and Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812 at number 22. Yes, yes, yes. As far as show-related ephemera is concerned, I have two pieces of ephemera for you. The first is a clip of Jerry Lewis, yes, famed comedian Jerry Lewis, singing Those Were the Good Old Days. I figured if we brought him up earlier, we should hear from him. Don't you agree? Yes. Here is a little bit of that rendition for you. Whenever I'm from time to time depressed And a trauma wells and swells within my breast I find sometimes deep inside of me As I fondly walk the lane of memory. <laughs> Tourist. Now let's take a moment to recognize Damn Yankees, the rock supergroup that has been haunting my research all week. Uh, do you mean Damn Yankees, the rock supergroup? No, computer, I do not, stupid computer. The band consists of Tommy Shaw from Styx, 
Jack Blades from Night Ranger, Ted Nugent from the Amboy Dukes, and Michael Cartelloni, Cartelloni, I don't know, who was an unknown drummer when Damn Yankees formed in 1989. They had two top 40 hits in the 90s, those being High Enough and Where You Going Now? Shall we hear a bit of the former? High Enough? Uh-oh, Mr. Shallowy has returned to us. Uh-oh. Let's do it. Let's drop that audio in right here. I don't want to hear about it anymore It's a shame I've got to live without you anymore There's a fire in my heart A pounding in my brain is driving me crazy We don't need to talk about it anymore Yesterday is just a memory And we close the door I just made one mistake I didn't know what to say When you called me show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, I'm pregnant and I can't see my feet. Everyone ready? Then away we go. Okay, we have landed in the year 2018. This was a nominee in 2018 for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 327 performances. Do you have an idea as to who this musical is about? I'll give you a hint. The name of the lead character is also the title of the musical. Okay, time's up. <laughs> time's up. Stop thinking about it. SpongeBob SquarePants. Ah, yes, that's right. He lives in a pineapple under the sea, and he will be our best best friend next week on The Musical Man. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. As a reminder, 100% of every monthly payout is donated to the Black Lives Matter organization. You can donate $1, $3, $5, or $10 a month. If you donate $1 a month, you get Monday early access to all of our Wednesday main feed episodes. You get a verbal shout-out each and every week. Thank you so much for donating at least $1 a month. Vitor, Sydney, Katie, Elena, Anton, Ross, HJG, Jared, Eli, David, Dave, Christopher, Neil, Brian, Robin, Liz, Carrie, Maddie, Jonathan, Mark, S, Rob, Shauna, Shianti, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you. You also get bonus episodes regarding the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, a review of the film Cats, a review of the stage musical Emma, but also Take Me to the World, a Sondheim 90th birthday celebration, 
Celebration, Hamilton via Disney+, Documentary Now, Original Cast Album, Co-op, John Mulaney and the Sack Lunch Bunch, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, and Dolly Parton's Christmas on the Square. You also get Season 1, 12 episodes of Radio Boy, that is a special series for which I check in with myself, and the non-musical theater songs that make me feel more like myself. It's a very nice show, very personal. And finally, in the $1 a month tier, we have M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which we watch and discuss trilogies, trios of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Here are all of the movies we have already talked about via M3, The Movie Musical Man, The Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, The Umbrellas of Sherbur, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, The Last Five Years, Stuck, The Pirate, The Pirate Movie, Muppet, Treasure Island, Gay Paris, Anastasia, Ugly Dolls, Scrooge, Mrs. Santa Claus, Anna and the Apocalypse, Phantom of the Paradise, Voyage of the Rock Aliens, Camp Rock, Star, The Greatest Showman, and Rocket Man. Our next episode is dedicated to the Sherman Brothers, that's the theme, the Sherman Brothers, Mary Poppins, The Happiest Millionaire, Charlotte's Web, ever heard of them? We're talking about all three. Look for that new episode to drop on March 31st. This will actually be the last episode of M3 you will see until July at the earliest, so do not miss out. Do not miss out. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus you get a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. You get season one, ten episodes of Wild Cats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, and a special one-off episode about season one of Julie and the Phantoms. $5 a month will net you everything I've already described, and you will also get to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. You also get All I Ask of You, seasons one and two. That's 24 episodes of an advice show hosted by none other than the Phantom of the Opera. Hello. You also get access to our Broadway and Chicago review series and Shout About It, volumes one and two. Those are collections of five, six, seven, eight coffee ads and musical shout outs from the first 50 episodes of the podcast. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already described, plus exclusive announcements regarding future subjects of the main feed. Season one, 12 episodes of The Snug Club, for which we discuss Broadway musicals that were not nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical, and starting April 28th, a brand new bi-weekly series, Turn It Off, which is going to be all about off-Broadway musicals. If you're listening to the show via Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, we are now officially available through Podchaser. I claimed the show. Please take a moment to write a five-star review via either of those two platforms. We are looking to generate a total of 65-star reviews at this point between the two platforms. So, So, if you've already written a review via Apple Podcasts, you should go over to Podchaser and write a five-star review over there. They all count toward our goal of 60 five-star reviews. Once we reach that goal, I will record and release a special episode all about Disney's Zombies and Disney's Zombies 2. Other streaming options beyond Podchaser include Spotify, Stitcher, and Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com. You can and should follow us on Twitter, at musicalmanpod, and you can and should email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Have you ever been in a production of Damn Yankees? Have you ever seen a production of Damn Yankees? Have you ever worked backstage on a production for a production of Damn Yankees? Well, I want to know about it. Email me, I say. Email me. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny for their enormous amount of support and their incredible hard work. Thank you so much to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous intro and outro music. Uh Uh-oh. We're about to hear that outro music because you know what that sound means? The 
one you just heard. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Mr. Burns had done it, the power plant had won it, with Roger Clemens clucking all the while. Mike Sosha's tragic illness made us smile, while Wade Boggs lay unconscious on the barroom tile. We're talking softball, from Maine to San Diego, talking softball, Manningly and Conseco, Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. Steve Sachs and his running with the law. We're talking Homer, Ozzy and the Straw. We're talking softball from Maine to San Diego. Talking softball, Mattingly and Conseco, Ken Griffey's grotesquely swollen jaw. Steve Sachs and his running with the law. We're talking Homer. Ozzy and the Straw